HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a new podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $170 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. In each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Gretchen Van Asselsen. I'm the Director of Education at SFA. We're so happy to bring you this episode live from the Fancy Food Show in New York. Live audience, show them that you're here. Give us a big round. And we're also so pleased to be working with Heritage Radio Network to bring you the show. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way that eaters think about food. Now I'd like to introduce my guests. Dan Pashman is the creator and host of the James Beard and Webby Award-winning podcast, The Sporkful, which, as he says, is not for foodies, it's for eaters. On The Sporkful, Dan uses humor and humanity to approach food from many angles, covering science, history, identity, culture, economics, and more. Let's give a big round of applause for Dan. And now, Dan, you you were already James Beard Award winning, but I heard you just got another one. Uh, Yes, just this past Saturday night. It was very exciting. I was in Chicago, and uh, our podcast won for uh, audio reporting, outstanding audio reporting. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. So, um, Dan has had some great colleagues along the way, and among them have been the folks seated to my left. So a company called Sfolini was founded in 2012 by Chef Steve Gonzalez and Creative Director Scott Ketchum, 
with a vision of making high-quality, traditional Italian dried pastas with American ingredients. We'll learn a lot more about what came next. So please welcome Dan Steven Scott. So this story, like all great meals, begins with pasta. Stephen Scott, would you tell me, how did the idea for your company come about? Uh, sure. <laughs> it, uh, well, originally, it was just uh, I wanted to get out of the restaurant business and in, into the pasta business because pasta was something I had always done in restaurants. And at first, it was supposed to be a restaurant, and we were going to sell pasta out the back door. And uh, I met Scott through a mutual friend, and he was going to help bring the design together and the logo together, which he, which he did. And then as we, what was that, 2012, 10? Probably 11. Um, there was some financial thing going on, and uh, crisis, maybe. And uh, anyway, the, the idea of going out and raising all this money to have a restaurant seemed kind of ridiculous. So we started looking at the one portion of the business plan, which was selling pasta out the back door. And uh, what, thirty-five, thirty-five thousand dollars. We we started Svolini in in the Pfizer building in Brooklyn. Yeah, as we did the research for that business plan, we just started to discover there really wasn't an American brand making a quality pasta at the time, and there wasn't one branded as a New York pasta either, which seemed like a really big missed opportunity. So we just thought we, there was a great way to jump into the business there, and and it was feasible for us to do with the with the money we had saved up. It, I heard that you were delivering that pasta in plain brown bags, kind of like a street beer. Uh, it, you know? No, almost. It's like uh, the fish containers that are you see so so much in restaurants is what we were. And then the original retail packaging were, yes, like off-the-shelf brown bags that we used to put like 10 stickers on to, to, get, to make work. <laughs> and um, I was in the brand new Whole Foods over on Madison Avenue the other day, and I um, which is focusing a lot on local products, and your display there is just stunning. And when I saw that box of the hemp radiatore, or radiators, I think you guys say, um, I was just blown away to think that you have come from plain brown bags to the beautiful packaging that you have today. Would you talk a little bit about that journey with the packaging? Yeah, we went with those brown bags to start because they just gave us flexibility to try new things. We didn't have to go out and get things printed. We could just have some blank stickers, and I actually... And did handwriting for all the labeling for probably about four years. Wow. <laughs> Until eventually we scanned all on the handwriting in one day and started applying it that way. But it just gave us a lot of room to be experimental, try different things, different shapes, different flavors in the pasta. And we would use the farmer's markets to it's like focus groups to see what people liked. Yeah. The carpal tunnel had kicked in, so you figured you, you better start using something else. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be trying to apply for workers' comp for your carpal tunnel, Scott. <laughs> I still got that aggravation. <laughs> I had the same thought. So one day, did you get a call from a mad genius named Dan Pashman, or how did it happen? Dan, what was the genesis of Cascatelli? Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a chef. I, uh, I mean, like, at best, a decent home cook. I'm really like a podcast host by trade. But I wanted to tell a big epic story on my podcast. Started like you know the mid 2010s, and the podcasting boom happened, and there were all these uh, sort of multi-part stories being told. And I was like, "What would my version of that story be?" That was really where it started. And then I was like, "What if I invent a food? What food should it be?" And I settled on pasta because uh, number one, I just it was a food that I had a lot of strong opinions about, where I felt like this idea of the shapes, pasta shapes were just there were a lot of pasta shapes I was dissatisfied with. 
Um, and I also wanted a product that would be shelf stable and not expensive because I, I have listeners all over the country and I wanted to be, them to be able to order it. The whole idea was like, we're going to do a story. We'll tell the story of the creation of this product and the end of the series, it will go on sale. That was what I knew I wanted. And, the, and it can be, it needs to be something that would be easily shipped to listeners everywhere because I wanted them all to be able to participate. And so, uh, so I set out to create a new pasta shape. Amazing. And did you start out by calling these guys? Uh, no, I didn't. that's not how I started out. I started out by announcing on a stage that I was going to do it, which, was, which is, kind of, <laughs> once you do that, then you have to do it. <laughs> I, that is not in my contract. Right. So I kind of started with several prongs at once. One was just talking to friends to get advice. Um, I talked to Evan Kleiman, who hosts Good Food in L.A. She was a chef at an Italian restaurant, and she's a friend of mine. She said, go out and eat every weird shape you can get your hands on. So I started doing that and kind of cataloging. What do I like? Ruffles, tubes, long, short. And then I learned that I needed a dye made, made, and there's only one dye maker left in America, so I had to kind of nag him into working with me because he's busy with real companies, which I was not at that time. <laughs> um, and then I needed someone to make it. And I, like, I, I, so there were a lot, some companies I talked to that were just like, we, we only do fresh pasta regionally. Well, that's no good. Big companies, you know, I knew that I needed a company that would take care and work with me on this project because, like, I knew that, like, we're not just going to, like, make one die and have a perfect product. I needed someone who was going to take care of it. And I didn't have confidence that big, really huge corporations would do that. If they said yes, they'd, like, assign me to some random person in the <laughs> corner of the basement. Um, I felt like these, like, the Steven Scott at Fellini were, like, they take a lot of pride in making a really high-quality product. They're the owners it's a small enough company, that, like a big enough company to do the things I needed, but small enough that they still really care about the quality and they're directly involved. So I felt like it was the perfect fit. Fantastic. And what did you guys think? Did you know Dan before? Did you trust him? Did you know about this the fact that he had gone on a stage and made this commitment? Uh, I mean, I had listened to probably like one podcast about wagon wheel pasta that they, that they did that I thought was, was funny. Uh, but no, we, we got a call from, uh, I think it was someone on Ingafim, Ingafim from, his, from your staff. Right, one of my producers. Yeah, and uh, we're always, I mean, that's kind of been like the founding, one of the principles of our business is to try to be innovative and try to work on new projects that we really didn't think the big manufacturers were doing. So it kind of seemed like a, a good fit for us. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I was introduced to the podcast when they called, so I started listening. And then we, I mean, we're really looking for new ways to reach different audiences too. So it seemed like a great fit to not only be experimental with our pasta and reach new people and be interested in Spolini too. So around that time, what, where was your business at before the Cascatelli journey? What were some of your, you know, biggest sellers, or where were you at? Oh, uh, where we're. we're... We had just moved in. We were probably like a year into our new factory upstate. Um, and then I think we were launching. We had just probably launched Whole Foods National. Yeah, about a year before that. Uh, so we, are, we have a couple of shapes that were big sellers. Uh, our trumpets that we call them, or Campanella Pasta, and our Reginetti. So they, they were more unique shapes and were attracting attention. It took a long time. Like when we started in 2012, the unique shapes weren't high roll movers, <laughs> it took a while for people to adopt that and, and really appreciate the different uh, qualities that they bring to a dish. So at this, that stage, we were starting to see people appreciate it more. 
Fantastic. So then the partnership came together. Um, Dan, could you just give, take us through a little bit about how the podcast mirrored the, you have, I think, eight episodes about Cascatelli? It's up to eight, right? The, the original series, um, which is still in the Sporkful podcast feed, if people want to check it out, the series is called Mission Impossible. And it was a five-part series that told the story of this, like, three-year quest. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I was recording as we were developing, and I was going up to this Fellini factory with my microphone recording, and we would talk on the phone or Zoom and record. I was recording with my wife in our house, and her telling me, what a terrible idea this was, <laughs> and how much it was driving her crazy. Um, you know, and you know, it was also like then COVID hit, and that created manufacturing trouble as well as like our kids being home from school all the time, and so you know, life stresses. And my wife's like, you know, we really have bigger priorities right now than your dumb pasta shape. Um, <laughs> really, get your priorities <laughs> right. Come right. on. So that's all in the podcast too. Uh, and so, you know, and also just the stories of just like the, the, the frustrations of, of getting the, the dye makers to pay attention. And then once they paid attention to get them to make the dye and everything was delayed. And then we, after months of delays and frustration, the dye would get to Sfolini and they would start extruding the product and it wouldn't come out the way we thought it was going to come out. So we spent months waiting for a replacement dye that didn't fix the problem of the previous iteration. Um, I think these are probably familiar issues to anyone who's worked in manufacturing, but they were new to me, and I think new, you know, new to a lot of our listeners. And to the ones who've worked, I've heard from so many people who work in food development or other kinds of product development who were like, I played this series for my family and they finally understand what I do. <laughs> so partnerships are hard. Um, tell me a little bit, you know, if you don't mind sharing it with the, fo the folks here in the audience and the listeners at home. Was there a moment for you guys at Spolini where you really felt like you, you just felt like you were ready to quit on this? It was not going to work out? Not really, in my opinion. Like, I, Dan, I, we were a little more familiar with these kind of delays, like Dan just said. <laughs> right. So they can happen. Um, and we went through, I think, three iterations of it before we got to the yeah, final one. And also, I think the, we never really thought of anything because the goal was to sell 5,000 boxes of pasta. Mm -hmm. That was, that was the goal. That's what we had boxes made for. It was very, it seemed very simple and small. So we were going to make it and we were going to be done. And I thought we would move on. And <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there in a minute about what, ha what yeah. happened next. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, not too many bumps around along the road then. So I guess my next question was going to be, um, was there a moment when you were pretty sure that it was going to be a triumph? Yes. <laughs> the first, the first, Maybe a few moments. the first, uh, well, I think someone had gotten into the site because it was, the dam was going to do the final episode and then the announcement was going to be that it was for sale, but some savvy person figured out how to get into our store and started buying pasta before it was even went up. You got hacked basically <laughs> by somebody who wanted to buy it. Yeah, like, we had it live, but it was hidden. And, uh, but somebody found it somehow. Yeah. So its sales were rolling in quickly. I mean, we sold the first 5,000 pounds in 15 minutes. The podcast episodes were rolling out over several weeks. So we launched episodes one and two, and then it was episode three the next week, episode four. And then we said that episode four came out on a Monday, and we said, okay, Thursday is going to be the finale. 
uh, Thursday afternoon. So people had some advance notice, like the finale is coming. And, and by the end of episode four, I think we made it clear, like, because for much of the series, you didn't know if this was going to work and if there was going to be any product at the end of it. By the end of episode four, we kind of made it clear, like, there's going to be something at the end of this. And the episode is going to go up on Thursday afternoon. So people kind of um, were, were ready for it at that point. So I was one of those early adopters. So the, at the beginning, when you could only buy, I think it was an eight-pack at the beginning. Is that right? Something four? like was that. It three, or four, four packs. Yeah, I went like through that. different stages. <laughs> but so you know, I'm a huge listener to the podcast, so I had been following along. My brother's a huge listener, so I was like, "I'm going to have it for Dave's birthday. I'm going to have it for Dave's birthday." And sure enough, I got it the day before, and we had a big Cascatelli party and made it all. And then we were really sad because we didn't have any more, and we had to go get more. But um, yeah, it, we, we took kind of a jump ahead. But so, Dan, a couple of t- the challenges along the way. So our audience, many of them are the makers of specialty food products. So they know, and then the folks here, Stephen Scott, know about the challenges of bringing a product to market. Could you tell us about some of the things that really surprised you about how hard it, is, it can be? I mean, I'm not a patient person. <laughs> so... Just the amount of time that it takes, even in normal times, to get things made. The other thing that was a learning experience for me was just like, you know, I'm accustomed to like you order something online. You go to the store and you pick it up or you order something online and it shows up at your door. And I never really like dissected all the components of the thing that shows up at my door and thought about like, oh, there's the box and there's maybe like the bubble wrap and then there's the the box inside of the actual product. And that box is made of like paper and maybe a plastic window and some kind of glue. And then inside of that box, there's 10,000 things that have all been put together into one thing. But those 10,000 things all started in different places and had to be made individually and sent to different areas to end up in the same place to be brought together into this one, what feels to me at the end of the chain as one thing is actually this amazing kind of miracle of of manufacturing that all these little bits and pieces have been brought together and so even something as simple as pasta that just is like flour and water and a box but even those things require all these different little pieces so it gave me a new appreciation for just all of those little details that I didn't have before um so for Stephen Scott I know it's the pandemic when all of this was going on, has been a particularly tough time for specialty food makers. Um, people are having trouble getting packaging, getting ingredients, getting workers. How have you guys coped? Oh, we're, we're doing okay. Uh, b- business is good, uh, but we're just having, we, you know, we're, we're in the middle of equipment delays. We've ordered new equipment uh, that's been delayed. What used to take three months takes nine months now. Um, packaging that used to take eight weeks now takes six weeks and there's been huge increases 16 16 weeks prices big increases on corrugated cost of materials have gone up so uh, it's 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 tougher but you know just kind of it seems like we've always had challenges along the line of the business so it just seems like another challenge to to get over yeah definitely I mean we're, we're having to buy things now where I'm already thinking about early 2023 for packaging. So it's harder to forecast when uh, you're at a show like this and you're trying to get new customers and you don't know how many of them are actually going to happen in those next six months. So buying appropriate for those circumstances is very difficult. But um, you just have to, as Steve said, you have to go with it and just learn the new way things are done now. (laughs) 
So I wanted to mention to our live audience, we, we could take some calls by taking you right up to the microphone. You can uh, you know, pretend you're calling in from home, or you could just go ahead and ask a question. So think up a question or two, and I'll turn to those mics in just a minute or two, and you'll come into the aisles. You, you have to precede your question, though, by saying first time, long time. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And in the, in the form of a question. Yeah. Um, so I have to admit that I follow the Cascatelli hashtag on Instagram. Um, at the beginning, it was mostly to see recipes people were making with it, but um, and I believe Dan's Dan, your mom made a bunch of those recipes. Yeah, yeah. So for for the uh, for the first holiday, the pasta launch in March 2021, the first holiday this past holiday season, holidays 2021, we uh, the Svolini guys and I we put together like a holiday package that was Cascatelli. Uh, cool dish talises, put some cascatelli in my belly, and a recipe booklet. Like, there's 12 or 15 recipes. Some of them uh, they came up with, some of them I came up with in collaboration with my mom. So uh, she was my main recipe developer for that. And yeah, so she, uh, she killed it, though. I was on the Today Show in December. We did her mushroom ragu. It was a big success. It was beautiful stuff. But so I still follow this, this hashtag at least a couple of times a day. I see someone cooking with it. And I kind of feel a bond, you know. I feel like I'm in, in the club. You know, so how has social media, do you think, figured into the success of this product? Oh, it's been wonderful. I mean, at Spillini, we have a great audience that posts pictures all the time, and I'm amazed by the quality of the photos. <laughs> so it's like everybody out there is a perfect food photographer now. But uh, so we, we always see all the great dishes people prepare. We create recipes for all of our unique pastas so people have a starting point to work from, and it's, it's the same case with Cascatelli. Um, so we had a recipe ready to go at the launch, and then Dan kept crafting more recipes after that. Um, but the social media spread of it just helped people share what they were doing with the pasta, how much they enjoyed it. And the amazing thing is I, I go through all the reviews that get entered into the website to approve them for posting. And I was just amazed how many people loved it and thought it lived up to all of the qualities that Dan really tried to put into the, um, achieve with the pasta shape. And, and everyone wanted more and more. Like, usually you get people like, oh, it was a lot of hype, but it was okay, or something like that. But no, they're like, it was worth the hype. It lived up to everything. Everyone was just spreading the word of how great it seemed that they appreciated the pasta. Amazing. So you just mentioned those qualities. So, so Steve, as a chef, when you think about pasta, I know Dan identified three characteristics that he felt were the appropriate ones for, for pasta. So thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think I do like the uh, the three sauceability, forkability, tooth sinkability. I think those Steve, are really. You shouldn't, you shouldn't need help at this point. Yeah. To those. <laughs> I think those are really great descriptors that have really helped the the pasta do well. Um, but mostly, I have a very simple view on pasta: is that if you like pasta, you should eat it. Whatever you should eat it, how you enjoy it. So uh, that's just kind of my my view. Yeah, but I think one of the cool things about sort of, because at the beginning of the story, I lay out these three characteristics, fork ability, how well does it stay on the fork, sauce ability, how well does sauce adhere to it, and tooth sink ability, which is like how satisfying is it to sink your teeth into it. And I think a lot of people are like average customers, we're like vaguely aware, like, yes, I think there's a general awareness, like, oh, you want the pasta to hold sauce. People, people kind of knew that. And like, they, there's some awareness of like this idea of al dente, you know, but... I don't think people had really thought critically and analytically about the pasta that they eat every day. Most people hadn't put that much thought into it. And um, when I talk about specific foods in great detail on the Sporkful, one of the reactions that I get that I really love is people will say, 
I never knew I had such strong opinions about that. <laughs> and I love that reaction because it's like it's, the listener is, it's like you're revealed, like they're gaining a new appreciation for the food, but they're also kind of learning something about themselves. They're like, oh, I'm actually a pasta nerd and I didn't realize it. Um, and that's a super fun reaction to provoke. So I knew early in the series that I wanted to provoke that reaction about pasta from listeners. So the series opens with me and some other people arguing about pasta shapes. Um, and so I think that that's a big part of the success of the shape is that it, it gave people a deeper appreciation for pasta in general and for the, what a great pasta shape can do. Fantastic. So if our audience, if anyone has a question, go ahead and stand behind the mic and, oh, fantastic. All right, here we go. Ring, ring. Hello. <laughs> hey there, you're live with the Sporkful and Spellini on the Spill and Dish podcast. Hi, my name is Elena. I'm calling in from aisle one. Um, <laughs> first time, long time, is that what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, I actually have a question about the shape of the Cascatelli, and I'd be interested to learn how you came to that fun shape. It's like a curled half tube with the ruffles. And, you know, was it like a Dr. Frankenstein thing where you were like, I like this from this traditional pasta shape, but it needs to be more like this. So I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. Yeah. So it's similar to what you're saying. I mean, you know, basically I set out to eat every obscure pasta shape I could get my hands on. I went to the specialty stores all around New York. I was ordering online. Um, any kind of shape that wasn't the, one of the run-of-the-mill ones. And I just was eating them for, for a month or two and really just trying to think very critically. Um, you know, I was isolating variables. What do I like? Do I like tubes? Do I like flat? Do I like long, short, ridges, ruffles, etc.? And the first thing that I really hit on, I, I ate a shape called Mafalda, which is a long, flat noodle like a fettuccine but with ruffles down the side. Or you could think of it like lasagna but narrow enough to wrap around a fork. And I had had it before, but not in a long time. And I was reminded about how much I love it. And, and there's two things I love about it. First of all, I think ruffles hold sauce and they hold little bits of things really well. But also ruffles are really fun in your mouth. And they are a unique textural sensation that no other, there's no other pasta component that does what ruffles do. And there aren't that many shapes that have ruffles. Um, certainly, like if you take out lasagna, like you know, lasagna, there's a bunch of other stuff going on in there. I think the ruffles a little bit get lost. So I was like, ruffles. That was the first thing. I want ruffles. And I, I wanted a long shape. So that was part of what I wanted. Then there was a lot of talk about bucatini. There's a big cult of bucatini. I was opposed to bucatini early on in my journey because I felt like everyone always says, oh, it's like spaghetti, but it's hollow down the center. And so the sauce goes into the tube. And I was like, no, that's... Nonsense, the sauce, it's too narrow of a tube to gather the sauce. So I thought it's a sham. But I went and I ate some more bucatini anyway, because I was like, I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm researching, you know, so let me keep an open mind here. So I went and go ate some more bucatini and I had a realization. The realization that I had is what makes bucatini great is not that it is very sauceable, it's that it has a unique texture. It's springy. Because other, most tube pastas are a big, wide, fat tube. So when you bite into it, they just go flat. But bucatini, being a very narrow tube, has more tensile strength. And so when you bite into it, it, it bites back. Like it pushes, it has, it has the, the strength to, and that's a very special thing. So I was like, I want that. How do I get some of that? So I, that was really where it came. How do I get a little bit of like the ruffles of Mafalda with the springiness of bucatini? And the, I started talking to the Fellini guys, and they were like, this is cool, but this is a long shape, is a nightmare. 
because these ruffles are sticking out of one side. The dye maker, Giovanni, I worked with um, D. Maldari and Sons and Damari. And um, Giovanni, uh, Damari, he said, you know, the, the first way that I wanted to combine the ruffles and the tube wouldn't work. I said, what if we move the ruffles all to one side? He said, yes, that will work. But the Svolini guys were like, it's going to make the shape so bulky, it will never fit in any normal size box. So we, I said, okay, fine. And they also made the point, they said, we don't think it's going to be as good. We think it'll be better short. They convinced me. We made it short. The sort of comma-like curl of the shape, that was just an accident or dumb luck. Like, we just plugged in the die, and that's how it started coming out. And we were like, this looks really cool. Like, it looked cooler than it would have been if it was just straight. So we just, that was just good luck. Yeah. Yeah, one of the early... Tests. I mean, with those ruffled edges, the other unique thing about them is that they're perpendicular to the base of it, which is not very common. So that really creates a lot of that um, tooth sinkability aspect of it. But and, and the sauce, the sauce yeah, trough, the sauce trough down right. the center, the sauce trough, that space in between the ruffles. You know, but that, but that was like an accident. Well, with the first iteration we did, I think that it was too. It wasn't dense enough, so like the ruffles just kept breaking off. Right. So the, the thickness of the pasta really was determined by how to hold all these and things was, together. Was there, a dip, was there a dip in the first one? Was there, there was. So we couldn't do a full tube, so we got this kind of half tube. I think there was, but it was a little bit flat. Mm-hmm. I think one of my feed, feedback with the first iteration of the dye was that when you cooked it, when we cooked it, that half tube turned flat. Yeah, as the pasta was. So the first one we did, the pasta was... It was thinner. It was super, super thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah, combination of just trial and error and a little bit of the aspects of the equipment and everything played into it quite a bit, too. Amazing. Thanks to our caller for that great question. Do we have another call? I'm just going to head over to our operator. Is the, oh, there is a, another call coming in. Hang on one second. We have, I can hear some ringing. All right. Hi, you're live with the Spill and Dish Podcast Live with this workful and Spillini. Thank you. I'm Christina, also from aisle one. Um, <laughs> you guys said earlier that consumers, like your, your unique pasta shapes were not fast movers and that consumers weren't really going after them. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the success of Cascatelli has changed that? Or do you think this is like sort of one that's successful because of all the things you've described today? Yeah, I think it's played a big role in that as so as I mentioned, like about the time we met Dan, we were starting to see people adopt them a lot more. I mean, we'd done it for about six to seven years at that point, so we've been really pushing these unique shapes and flavors for quite a while. And uh, we've been lucky and received a lot of great press in that time frame, too, just because we were doing something new in the industry where a lot of manufacturers were sticking to the really traditional shapes that really just sold regularly. So now with this whole new audience that was coming in to see Cascatelli, because that journey, that the five episodes and really learning the process, I think inspired a lot of people to learn more about pasta making. And that just helped uh, people try all our other items on our, on our website at the same time. And we've seen that, that renewed interest on the shelf too. And in the last few years, I think people have been focusing a lot more on, on the innovation that these shapes have brought to pasta and how they can make your dishes unique looking and beautiful and even pair a lot better with different sauces and ingredients. Great. Thanks to our caller. So, Dan, you've had two big things going on with Cascatelli recently. You've gone private label and you've gone gluten-free. Could you take us on a quick mini version of those two journeys? Uh, yes. Yeah, so when, when, uh, when, the, when the pasta first came out and it was going viral and bananas, I you know, was contacted by a couple of other companies. And so just sort of, it all kind of came together pretty quickly. But 
Um, so, so I licensed a version of it to Trader Joe's, which they manufacture separately from Svolini. Um, and that seems to be going really well. And then I, I worked with Bonza to make a, a version out of chickpeas, um, which was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, I'm not gluten-free, but I was hearing from my listeners, like, where's the gluten-free version? Um, and so I, I did some research into that. I ate a bunch of the different brands and also just sort of learned a bit about the science of gluten-free pasta um, and learned that while there's no perfect substitute for it, um, the versions that are made out of legumes, made out of high-protein bases, tend to have a little bit more of the same chemical properties as gluten, because gluten's a protein. And so chickpeas, for instance, which is what Bonzi use, have a protein. Um, it's not the same as gluten, but it has some of the same properties. Um, and so I uh, talked with them, and so we launched that in February, and that one is now in Whole Foods nationwide, is one of Bonzi's offerings, and uh, planning to take it more places from there. Fantastic. So let's see. So uh, I think that's it on the switchboard. I don't think we have any further calls from our uh, listening audience. So we're going to move in and we're going to take a quick break and uh, hear from our sponsor. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. So, um, Stephen Scott, you've been at the Fancy Food Show for the last two days exhibiting. How's it been going? What have you been tasting? What have people been saying? Uh, we've had a very basic booth. It's been great. Uh, we've been tasting the Cascatelli each day as one of our, since it's one of our newer items. Um, there's a lot of great people have come around to um, to say how much they loved hearing about the pasta on the show. Uh, also, just uh, how much they've fo or followed our journey over the last ten years as well. Uh, we've always felt great about the, our dedicated customer base that we've had since we started the company. So that's one aspect of the fancy food show I always love is that there's different types of people coming to the show. It's not it's not only us trying to sell, but we have different uh, relationships that we get to see here in person and customers come by. It's, it's good, and especially after the last few years to hear face-to-face -face stuff. Much people love what we do. <laughs> what are you going to be cooking up today, Steve? Uh, cascatelli. Yeah, cascatelli with, uh, is it car carbon? Are we still doing the carbon sauce? Yep. The carbon sauce, which is very good, very good product. And we, uh, yeah, we'll be tasting that. Dan will be at the booth for a while again today, this afternoon. So we'll be greeting some more of his fans and people hungry for some pasta for lunch. <laughs> I love it. So we're almost out of time, but before we go, I would like you to participate in our final segment. 
This is take five, which is five questions for our guests. So I'm going to ping around a little bit. So Dan, you have entered this whole industry, the, the fancy food show, the specialty food industry. What is the, your favorite thing about the specialty food industry that you've seen so far? Uh, people love to eat, just like me. <laughs> We're all I mean, eaters, this whole yeah. event is like, uh, I mean, my wife came yesterday. She's like, this is like Halloween for adults. <laughs> <laughs> Trick-or-treating, food yeah, to food. Yeah, it's yep. fantastic. I love it. And for Stephen Scott, this, um, you're members of the Specialty Food Association. You know, we're the folks who put on this show. Um, we really cherish our members. What is one thing that you could say that SFA has made easier for you guys as specialty food business owners? Well, as I mentioned, the shows really helped us connect with a lot of people, which I've always appreciated. But during the pandemic, you were very innovative in ways and try to keep that connection going. Uh, that, was, that was a hard couple of years to move a business forward uh, with everything going on in just delays, but also just communicating to the public. Uh, you know, reach social media has been the key, and the way that specialty food is kind of adapted for ways, different ways to sell to people and communicate with them has been excellent. Fantastic. And Steve, I'm going to put this one to you. If you were not running this food business, what do you think you might be doing? Ooh, that's a... Retiring on a pile of Cascatelli? Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd probably move to Italy. I'd probably move back to Italy if I wasn't active in the company. Yeah, sounds good. Anybody else? Any dreams of what's coming next? No, I'm pretty focused. On yeah, what's pretty going focused. On at the yeah. We're in it, man. Yeah. You guys are in it. We're, it. We're, we're living. We're living, our, we're living the dream. Yeah. You're living the dream. No, yeah. absolutely. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, so, Dan, you've been through this, so I heard you talking to our friends at Seymour, um, Kara and Ariel, about some of the more boring aspects of the specialty food business. Um, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to a new food business? Be patient. You know, I, I think there's certain universal truths of like starting any small business. Like, I started the Sporkful podcast 12 years ago, and obviously there's some differences, different industries, et cetera, but like... There's certain basic things, that, and it's just sort of like your time is your most valuable asset. You can't do everything. You can't be all things to all people. Uh, and if you try to do everything, you're going to just be kind of mediocre at everything. And so I decided early on, like, I'm not, I don't put as much effort into social media as maybe I should. And I haven't tried that hard to pursue a career in TV despite some opportunities. Like, I care about making my podcast as great as it can be. And so, uh, and then that grew the podcast audience to the point that it was able to be a key part of launching Cascatelli, and then, you know, and then Cascatelli was like the second big project I ever did. So it's just like, you know, focusing on doing, I think that in a world where there's just so much and it's so hard to break through, I think that then there can be a natural inclination to be like, oh, there's so much, so I have to do it all. But the, you have to do the opposite of that. I think that like, if, because there's so much, you have to do less and focus on only being good at that one thing because you're never going to break through being mediocre at everything. That's a fantastic piece of advice. How about you guys? What's one piece of advice you would give to a new specialty food company getting started? Uh, stay, be patient. Uh, focus on your product. Focus on your execution. Uh, that the, I mean, fo if, your, if your product is your product, whether you're... Co-manufacturing or manufacturing it yourself is, you know, 
stay involved in, the, in that process and stay true to what the original idea was, but also be open to, to iteration too. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a long journey for the most part. There's some people that can hit it big pretty quickly, but it's going to be a long process in that looking back, I think I should have appreciated certain milestones along the way more. I was always more bogged down in execution all the time. So when something good happens, you should take the time to enjoy it and realize you know, how, how your journey's brought you there so far. I like that advice. I would just I would add or sort of modify like you have to be patient but also impatient. <laughs> you know, like it's gonna take a long time, but if you're too patient, you're gonna become sort of laconic. You have to I think a certain amount of impatience is good, but you also have to be persistent over the long, long haul and finding that balance, you know, like uh, I think that's important. Excellent. And our last take five question, I'll go to Dan and then to you guys. How do you define specialty food? I feel like they should answer first. They, the, the Scott and Steve. All right, anybody I jump in? What's specialty to you? Sure, I got to think to about it. It's the uniqueness. It's something that people, not necessarily a completely new type of food product, but something that someone hasn't seen in that particular industry before or that particular niche of food. I guess I would say I think of it as just being a marker of higher quality. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yes, I agree. Like, certainly I've seen things at this show that you don't see elsewhere, but I've also just seen, like, better versions of things that you see elsewhere. Like, I think that's the case with Sfolini. They're not the only people out there making pasta. They're just doing it better. So, you know, and, and I, I think that uh, that's what I think of. Like, if I, if I know that I'm going to be making a special dish for friends or I want a great ingredient, you know, like, this is the, like, these are the companies that I would turn to to make sure that I know that I'm getting something high quality. Fantastic. Well, we are getting ready to wrap up. So thank you very much to our guests for joining us today. Let's give them a big round of applause. So you can can find out more about our show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Thank you so much, Dan Pashman, Scott Ketchum, and Steve Gonzalez for joining us today. Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.